Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Josh Kahn from the Einstein Healthcare Network talking about management of sequela of neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. Hey, everyone. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Laura McGarry. I'm one of the PGY4 Einstein residents. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Josh Cohn this morning. Um, Dr. Cohn completed his residency at University of Chicago and subsequently went to Vanderbilt for his fellowship training. He has a busy practice in Philadelphia now in neurourology and female pelvic floor reconstruction at Einstein, which is home to Moss Rehab, which is a top-ranked rehabilitation hospital. Um, he always gives interactive and inspiring talks to the Einstein team, and we look forward to hearing his talk and learning more from him today. All right. Thanks, Dr. McGarry. I want to thank you all for being here and thank uh, UCSF for the effort that they put in, uh, in in keeping resident education up during this time. So uh, I hope if I get this working, uh, no disclosures. Um, what I hope to do over the next 45 minutes and then in the question and answer session is uh, review some of the basic neurophysiology associated with uh, neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction, help you understand how video urodynamics helps us in the diagnosis and then targeted management of that specific neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction, and then understand the variable approaches uh, to management. And maybe you'll feel inspired and want to join me in this, uh, what I think is an exciting and challenging field. So when we think about the consequences of neurologic injury. I think the most pronounced ones we tend to think about are the musculoskeletal disorders and deficits, but certainly the things that I think we don't see as, uh, in society, maybe are private for the patient, are bladder dysfunction, bowel dysfunction, of course, uh, some of the other sequelae. When we think about that from a clinical perspective, the true impact of the patient really impacts so much more than just what we see or what might be going on sort of underneath uh, the surface. Um, there's an impact on their independence and self-care, sense of self-worth, finances, their relationships. All these things are, are, are so devastated by the sequela of, of neurogenic uh, uh, dysfunction. And I think perhaps bladder dysfunction, as much as anything, has, has an impact or a negative impact on uh, these uh, sort of factors that are most relevant to patients. And so we have a real role to play in improving quality of life and helping to restore normalcy um, for our patients. My general principles of, I would say, neuro neurologic care. Um, number one, preserve kidney function to the extent uh, that I can. Number two, limit infection. And I think that goes hand in hand with preserving kidney function and, of course, maximizing quality of life. Now, a lot of times all of these goals are in concert, but sometimes they're not. Um, a patient may have a different idea about what maximizes their quality of life versus what I may think um, preserves their kidney function, for example. And sometimes we even have a differing opinion on what might maximize their quality of life, for example, in someone who doesn't want to catheterize, but probably would benefit from doing so. I want to briefly go over the physiology and, and to an extent, the pathophysiology associated with uh, the voiding process. Um, it begins with conscious processing in the forebrain. That, that part of the brain decides around, uh, looks at the environment and makes an assessment of whether it's an appropriate time to pee or an appropriate time to not be uh, avoiding. Uh, and then that sends a message uh, to the brainstem where the pontine micturition or storage centers coordinate conscious coordinate that conscious decision making so that the bladder bladder neck urethra and pelvic floor all behave accordingly 
The sympathetic nervous system then has a uh, inhibitory effect on the bladder and a stimulatory effect on the bladder neck to promote uh, urine storage. Parasympathetic nervous system, a uh, promotional uh, effect, uh, uh, excitatory effect on the bladder, inhibitory on the bladder neck. And then the sort of thing that we control, the somatic nervous system uh, involved in bladder storage has a stimulatory effect on the pelvic floor. Now that's a little bit of a sort of a, I wouldn't say it's a 40,000 foot view, but it's sort of a, uh, a, a 4,000 foot view. Um, but I think it's pretty much enough for us to understand how when you start introducing uh, defects in the nervous system, how that can negatively impact uh, bladder function. Now we start introducing lesions and patients ask, you know, why am I having these problems? And what I tell them is that most of the time we think of the bladder as this a little bit of a boring storage vessel. You know, its job is just kind of fill and empty. Um, but in reality, you can see from all of these, this complex relationship that the sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic, somatic, somatic nervous system all have to work in concert in order for storage and voiding to occur. And any of that gets thrown out of whack by uh, an injury to any part of this nervous system. And you can really have a significant uh, symptoms as a result of that. So you imagine um, if you have a lesion in the forebrain, an example of that might be stroke. You've got potential strokes uh, in the brainstem region. You have suprasacral cord injuries, and then sacral cord injuries or even peripheral um, pelvic nerve uh, injuries. How that can very easily throw uh, the uh, system out of whack and cause fairly bothersome symptoms for patients. In reality, though, it, it's, a it's fairly simple, the pattern of injury that, that can result. Um, on the bladder side, you can have overactivity, you could have underactivity, you could have both, of course, uh, and altered compliance. All three can be present. Um, as far as the uh, bladder neck, you could have synergy, dissynergy, or an open and, and slash incompetent sphincter. And then the same thing for the pelvic floor, synergic, dyssynergic, or open and incompetent. And the truth is, it's so important to define this in order to target therapy, but the only way to define it is with video urodynamics. As reliable as patterns of injury are, uh, when we look at sort of papers that go through hundreds of patients, 80% of them with this type of injury may show this, the truth is, the only way to define where, what's going on and how it's abnormal and how really to treat it is by performing uh, video urodynamics. So uh, I want to mention what we have is our American Urologic Association and SUFU guidelines for urodynamics. Uh, there's one specifically for neurogenic bladder uh, in the works, but for the moment, this is what we have um, from our societies. What's recommended in taking care of patients with uh, neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction is that everybody gets an assessment of post-word residual. Uh, and then systemetrogram is useful for patients with relevant neurologic conditions. Now that's defined as high-risk conditions uh, generally. Uh, spinal cord injury, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, patients with significant uh, deficits. We try to use fluoroscopy when available and EMG should be performed. Again, with grade B and C quality of evidence. Now, the truth is if a patient with a significant neurologic injury and as a sequela of that injury has bad urinary symptoms shows up in your office, they're sort of by definition complicated. And it's very likely that performing urodynamics will be beneficial in that setting. Uh, for those patients, sort of regardless of whether they're in a quote-unquote high-risk category, they're seeing a urologist for a reason they're bothered by their symptoms. There are a number of other societies that have produced guidelines on neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. I list them here. Uh, if you're interested, I would recommend taking a look at some of these, and they provide uh, a variety of uh, different treatment recommendations, diagnosis, and workup uh, as well um, for neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction and 
uh, are certainly worth your time if you're, if you're interested. So the first thing you need in order to perform video urodynamics is of course the equipment, uh, but you also need a great team. So the equipment necessary is a C-arm and a fluoroscopic urodynamics chair. You've got a monitor over here that allows for picking up the fluoroscopic image, uh, one for urodynamics. And again, you need a great team to help you run that equipment. Here's our nurse Kelly at Moss Rehab and our site supervisor Amanda who volunteered to take this picture. Um, but uh, really a great group. It takes, a, it takes some time to invest and teach everybody and help them to understand why it's so important to get these studies. But um, I think once, the knowledge starts to build amongst your team. They get really excited about the fact that you're doing it and what they're gonna find on studies and uh, really invaluable and I'm so grateful for them. So let's jump into some cases, which I hope will illustrate the variety of, of pathology that you may see and, and management strategies as well. So I'll start with this patient, a, a young man, he had a fall from a ladder. Uh, he had a C6 incomplete spinal cord injury and came to me presenting with hesitancy, uh, incomplete emptying and urgency. Really remarkable guy, very committed to getting back to normal in every facet of his life and to a large extent had done that when he came to for urodynamic studies seven months after his injury. So at that time I performed urodynamics and what we found is that he voided, he was telling me he was voiding on his own, not catheterizing, but he voided by terminal detrusor overactivity. So it was involuntary, the detrusor pressure started to rise, uh, and then eventually he had some flow. So when you look at this sort of blown up, you can see he's got this sustained detrusor contraction. He's got lots of EMG activity associated with it and a fairly low flow. Maybe he had a little flow back here, but it takes a while. So he's really not getting uh, much bang for the buck and he's not developing a volitional void. Now this is where fluoroscopy is quite helpful as well. When we look at it, you can see that his bladder neck remains completely closed during voiding. So he's just got this abnormally elongated bladder, maybe a little trabeculation as well, and a bladder neck that's not opening, um, which can fit certainly with a cervical pattern uh, uh, of injury. And it looks like based on his EMG activity that he's got some external sphincter dyslinergia potentially as well, but low flow limits to an extent our ability to see that. So I tried to convince him that he should catheterize. He didn't have upper tract changes then, but I was concerned that he was at risk for a problem as that, that I, I tried to convince him he should catheterize. I can try to convince him to take tamsulosin, and eventually he gave up on both. Uh, he came back to me 13 months later, so 20 months after his, his injury, and what we found was actually fairly interesting. Uh, at this time, a, a, quite a different study. He had, again, very happy with his symptoms. He said peeing on his own, not leaking, um, pretty happy with how he was doing. Um, having not catheterized and no longer taking tamsulosin, um, but he uh, had phasic detrusor overactivity, fairly high amplitude associated with EMG activity, so suggestive of potential uh, persistent detrusor external sphincter dyssynergia. Um, and then when you actually get to the end, he generates a volitional contraction. This truly was. I asked him to void and he generated a volitional contraction. So we're now 20 months past his injury and unlike prior when he couldn't do this, he now truly is developing uh, and able to generate a volitional contraction. When you look at it a little closer, you can see that the flow starts a little bit earlier at the time of his detrusor contraction. Um, and that uh, also the bladder neck has an improved appearance. It funnels a little bit more, although it's hard to tell, but it looks like perhaps that sphincter is still not as open as we'd like. And certainly the flow as denoted by this pink line is still fairly uh, uh, substandard below what we'd like it. 
So uh, he's a patient. Again, this is probably one of those circumstances where I thought maybe as far as protecting the upper tracts and, and optimizing his quality of life that perhaps catheterizing, uh, even being on medication would be something that would protect him. But to, to him, that was counter to his quality of life goals. And so as much as I counsel him on that, he, he wants to continue to volitionally avoid and, and doesn't want to take medication, but he has agreed at least to close follow-up. So what is, what, is the, what is the data on volitional voiding and spinal cord injury? About a quarter to a third of patients will be voiding on their own one year after injury. And if you want to know which patients are doing that, it tends to be those who are younger. Uh, women are more likely to be able to void on their own and those with injuries lower in the spinal cord. So not those uh, um, high thoracic and cervical, cervical injuries are, are less likely. And lower extremity motor function. So patients who walk into your office are going to be more likely to void on their own. Now they may walk with assists or a walker, but the ones who are particularly debilitated are less likely to be able to do it. Now, quality of life. We think about the traditional teaching in terms of what's the risk to the upper tract in a patient who voids on their own. Well, we think that if a valsalva or cordang, that that may transmit pressures to the upper tract, etc. But there are also other downstream effects um, from having to strain and push so much like hemorrhoids, hernias, um, etc. that that can certainly impact quality of life as well. Um, but again, uh, it's hard to convince patients who aren't using catheters and, and able to get their urine out that they should move in a different direction. Uh, here we'll call case 2A. This is a patient um, who had urgency urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, and incomplete emptying uh, after a C7 spinal cord injury, uh, incomplete, he's in Asia D. Um, so he walks into the office, a little bit of a limp, but you wouldn't otherwise know he had a spinal cord injury uh, and, and he had a fall um, that uh, caused that. So three years after his injury for workup of these urinary symptoms, he underwent urodynamics. And what we found is that he voids primarily by terminal detrusor overactivity is part of the way he voids, um, but also, does generate a volitional void. So let's sort of look at this a little closer. Again, terminal detrusor overactivity, some of the urine comes out in that context, probably explains his urgency urinary incontinence. And then as we zoom in on the voiding portion, we can see that he's got intermittent flow associated with increase in EMG activity. So nicely demonstrates that probably sphincter clamping down as you see here, um, and uh, unable to sustain uh, a nice flow for that. So this explains the symptoms. It's always great when urodynamics fits with uh, our, symptom comp our, our symptom profile. Again, this is a gentleman who has terminal detrusor activity as well as uh, external sphincter dyspnergia. So he ultimately elected to undergo sacral nerve stimulation. Catheters weren't an option for him. Uh, Botox uh, scared him um, because of the likelihood uh, for needing to catheterize for high likelihood of retention. And so he went ahead with sacral nerve stimulation. Now, uh, this showing the InterStim 2 system. We know we now have another system from Axonics that's rechargeable, and we've got uh, another MRI-compatible system that's expected from Medtronic in the near future. So that's great for our field, um, but I think to an extent not having that MRI-compatible device has limited how often we've been offering uh, sacral nerve stimulation for patients with neurogenic or urinary tract dysfunction. But it seems to work in the, in the well-selected patient. Um, remember that when this technology, this was being developed, it was originally developed in patients with neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction to try to reduce overactivity uh, and to try to stimulate spontaneous voiding, again, in patients who had lost that due to injuries. Um, when, it, when it goes in and, and it goes well, 
Um, we're talking about test phase success rates, 50 to 70%, implant success rates, 80 to 90%. And then in limited study in spinal cord injury, we've seen uh, up to 80% reduction in intermittent catheterization, significant reduction in overactivity and urgency leakage, um, and an increase in voided volume. Now, my own clinical experience with this is that patients who walk in the door, for me, are candidates for sacral nerve stimulation, provided they generate some sort of volitional void. Uh, or urgency urinary incontinence is their primary issue and they're really much, very much averse uh, to catheterization uh, with Botox. What I will say um, is that uh, I think that although this, this data suggests that regaining a volitional voiding is a benefit, uh, I'm not so sure, uh, I'm not so sure that uh, these patients, um, volitional voiding is a benefit. I'm not so sure that these patients do as well uh, as far as their reduction in uh, uh, catheterization, but more do well as far as urgency-related leakage. Right. So uh, moving on to what I would call case 2B. Okay, this is uh, a patient, again, also not too dissimilar for presentation, urgency urinary incontinence and retention after spinal cord injury. Uh, this patient had a motor vehicle accident, young man, um, Despite the cervical level of his injury, he actually was more functionally paraplegic. His symptoms were quite severe. He reported uh, symptoms of dysreflexia, urgency, and fear of leakage about every one to two hours. Uh, so we performed urodynamics for him at three years. Um, on his actual urodynamics tracings, and we'll show his video images in a moment, he had increased EMG activity during very high amplitude detrusor overactivity contractions, pressures above 200 centimeters of water associated with leaks. So again, reproduce the symptoms fairly uh, well. Uh, and then when you actually look at his video imaging, you can see that indeed, as the EMG suggested, he had external sphincter dyssynergia, a very dilated proximal urethra, and then a large right-sided bladder diverticulum. Um, and so because he had uh, failed anti-muscarinics, he elected to undergo uh, onobotulinum toxin A injection, 200 units, with significant improvement in his clinical symptoms. He went from catheterizing every one to two hours to every four to six hours. And I will tell you, in patients who are already catheterizing, onobotulinum toxin A uh, is just remarkable as far as what it's done for the field. Uh, so looking at the data with onobotulinum toxin A injection, we have probably the best Data we have is a, a four-year total study uh, combining North American and European data. And patients go from four leakage episodes per day at baseline, reduce that by 3.4 to 3.9 episodes across four years, and a 100% reduction in over essentially half of patients lasting nine months. It's really amazing what it's done for patients, and I see it improve quality of life so much. These are the ones I think that the, if, if you look at the companies that make these medications, they're always wondering why their overactive bladder patients have such poor compliance with coming back for injections. I'll tell you, the patients who have neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction or catheterizing, their compliance is very good because it makes such a big difference for them in, in terms of, of their treatment. Sometimes you will see, talking about bladder compliance, not patient compliance, but sometimes you will see an improvement in, in compliance uh, with this. So for patients who have concerning end fill pressures, you might see a benefit there. Um, important to counsel patients who are not already catheterizing that about a third of them will need to catheterize uh, after onobotulinum toxin A injections. So certainly a, uh, something that they'll want to know and you'll want to counsel them beforehand. So moving on to our case number three, uh, this is a case of 
urgency urinary incontinence and incomplete emptying in, in a woman with multiple sclerosis. So very nice woman. All my, all my patients are nice. That's why she can join the field. But uh, another very nice woman um, diagnosed with MS at the age of 35. So we're now about 20 years out. Uh, she had significant bother from hesitancy and urgency and urge leakage. Uh, and so we got urodynamics testing. The tracings are not quite as interesting as the, as the VCUG images. Um, but she had this marked dilation of the proximal urethra and uh, detrusor external sphincter dyssynergia to explain her symptoms. In addition, she had a CT scan which demonstrated bilateral hydroureteronephrosis. So she actually has upper tract imaging, uh, upper tract changes associated with these abnormalities. Uh, she couldn't catheterize. It wasn't something that was going to be feasible for her. And so she asked for anything I could possibly do for her to protect her kidneys and avoid the need for catheterization. Um, so we went with the, the you know, full-scale approach to try to, to try to avoid the need for catheterization and uh, improve her upper tract findings. She went forward with PTNS to optimize her uh, detrusor overactivity uh, with MS. I couldn't put a sacral nerve stimulation device in, not at that time at least. Uh, she uh, took darafenacin, which she continues to take for overactivity as well, and then underwent sphincteric injection of onabotulinum toxin A. And fortunately, she had resolution of both her hydronephrosis and urgency associated leakage. She's been very happy, and we do her repeat sphincteric injections and maintenance uh, PTNS um, at, at regular intervals. So it's a data on tibial nerve stimulation. Um, so again, this is another therapy. There are a lot more patients out there with overactive bladder, idiopathic overactive bladder than there are with neurogenic uh, overactive bladder. And so this is a, a technology or a therapy that's mainly marketed towards the one in six adults with overactive bladder. However, it, it can be successful in neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction as well. And there's really not a great reason why it can't be as successful or more, particularly patients who are walking, you know, walking into the office and don't have a huge level of disability. Uh, 40 to 100 percent clearly it's not 100 percent successful um, but ms you may see subjective improvement in over 80 percent and resolution of urgency associated leakage in in 40 to 50 percent we do find with most of these neuromodulation treatments that the frequency is a little harder to treat but the urgency associated leakage tends to, to get better a nice role in parkinson's and and in stroke these are patients who tend to be more debilitated you're, you may not be super excited about taking them to the operating room for a sickle nerve stimulation procedure. And then there's a questionable role uh, in spinal cord injury, although, uh, again, I think we're probably going to be more likely to, to be excited about the uh, um, sickle nerve stimulation in that field. Looking at external sphincter chemodenervation in, in neurogenic uh, lower urinary tract dysfunction, it's typically done with 100 unit total injections, so 25 units each at the 12, 3, 6, and 9 positions. When I do it, I tend to use a, a hysteroscope I found works really nicely for getting this nice visualization with the, with the lens of the camera being out just at the front of the scope and allowing for injection. Um, for injections. Uh, my, my success with this is mixed. I think that reflects the literature, whether it's mixed because uh, I'm not always picking the right patients for it, uh, or it's mixed because of the quality of injection varies, knowing exactly where the sphincter is from time to time. Uh, it's certainly, uh, I'd have to say that, that it's variable, but in this particular case for this patient, it's worked fantastic. And I've had others it has as well. Other patients, it's been a little bit more disappointing, um, but we may not have any other great option. I would agree with this. The duration of therapy can be as, as much as 13 months. I'd say that's definitely on the high end or as little as two. I think if you commit to this type of treatment, 
you have to tell patients that you're thinking about a, a, a therapy that they're going to be getting every three to six months potentially um, because it acts a little bit more like a peripheral muscle. They're going to their PM&R doctor every three months for Botox injections. Uh, and, and I would imagine we've, we've got the same sort of pattern here. Um, I would also counsel them about the risk of, of de novo stress generic incontinence, which is about 5%. Uh, Let's talk about case number four now. This is, a, this is a situation we unfortunately just see much too often. It's always so sad. So this is a 57-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome at age 35. That was, resulted in uh, quadriplegia associated with this. And she had a chronic urethral cath. She was in a nursing facility. And then she developed an eroded catheter and, uh, sorry, eroded bladder, neck, and urethra with just continuous leakage as a result of it. So in discussing her options, she uh, has decided to undergo a suprapubic catheter placement as well as placement of an overtight rectus sling. Now, unfortunately, she had persistent leak despite this. Uh, so being the urodynamicist, I wanted to just make sure that it wasn't because she had to choose her overactivity in a small capacity bladder that it was potentially because of, uh, not just because of intrinsic sphincter deficiency or failure of my sling uh, for that reason. Um, and what I found is that she had both intrinsic sphincter deficiency, you'll have to take my word for it on exam, uh, as well as phasic bladder and rectal contractions that were associated with leakage and discomfort as well. So she really needed treatment of, uh, of both. So we had planned for her a bladder neck closure and injection of onobotulinum toxin A into the bladder uh, for treatment of this, as well as suprapubic catheter management. Um, but uh, this was postponed due to um, COVID, so we don't have pictures of that. However, I will encourage you, if you go back to this talk or you go to our slides, you can click this link. There's a great video on the uh, AUA website on the surgical video library um, that shows the procedure that uh, is my preferred procedure for doing a vaginal bladder neck closure. Uh, it's based off of Dr. Rogner's report, which I'll go over in a second. So first, first treatment for this patient was an obstructing pubovaginal sling. There's about a 75% success rate associated with this particular procedure in the literature. I think that's my experience. If you have about a centimeter and a half, if you've got really any runway for placement of the sling, I think it's an option. Uh, I really like having the bladder neck to open suprapubic catheters clog as we as any resident knows suprapubic catheters clog uh, and need to be changed and uh, if you've if you've closed the bladder neck i think you you've left the patient in a really hard position sometimes you don't have a choice um, but uh, i do I, I do like that as a first option before going to a bladder neck closure um, most of these patients who we're doing bladder neck closures on, as you're seeing here, uh, they're fairly debilitated, uh, oftentimes don't have the greatest social support, um, physically not in, in, in great shape, and so a vaginal approach to this procedure really saves them significant morbidity. Uh, looking at Dr. Rovner's experience with this particular procedure, uh, patients, 10 out of 11 patients were successful closures at, at about 10 months. Um, but I will tell you that if this fails or perhaps based on the anatomy as it lays out or your comfort, uh, open and robotic approaches are also options as well uh, for bladder neck closure. And usually like to get some momentum down if you can to, to support it, um, but certainly failure is, is, is possible with that. So moving on to case number five, uh, this is a patient uh, with spina bifida who had uh, retention 
with urgency urinary incontinence versus overflow leak. This was chronic for her essentially since birth, uh, managed with her parents. But more recently, she had developed pain and burning despite treatment of and rule out of infection. And she had cystoscopy performed with another urologist before seeing me. Uh, and so I didn't move right to cystoscopy right away, um, but I, I moved forward with video urodynamics. And on this, she had this sort of very low amplitude phasic detrusor overactivity that seemed to reproduce her pain, but the whole picture didn't quite fit. Um, when she developed some hematuria, I ordered a CT urogram, which showed some stones in the bladder. And I thought perhaps uh, this was the cause for some of her pain. But unfortunately, when I went in to do her cystoscopy procedure, uh, what I found is she had a, she had a mass. Uh, performed a transurethral resection of that mass, and it wound up being muscle invasive squamous cell carcinoma. So she had options for management, but truly, this is a case where it became an oncology case, and she needed a radical cystectomy, which is what she went forward with. But what she chose, and she and her family chose, was to move forward with a totally robotic intracorporeal uh, diversion as well to try to limit her morbidity in the post-op period. So here on the left side of the screen, this is a, just a video of that operation that I did with uh, one of my colleagues in oncology. Um, and so uh, let's just review for a second. Think about not just cystectomies for uh, cancer, uh, which we know is a morbid operation, but specifically in the neurogenic population. To some extent, our patients, I think, with neurogenic bladder are a little bit better off because they tend to be a little bit younger in general, tend to be a little bit younger perhaps, a little bit healthier than some of our uh, patients in their 70s and 80s who are longtime smokers with bladder cancer. Um, but uh, uh, still we're talking about a 40-50% high-grade complication rate at 30 days. Uh, nearly half of patients will require readmission shortly after, shortly after discharge within the first 30 to 90 days, certainly, uh, of discharge. And we're still talking about a mortality of about 2%. So it's really a high-risk operation. But, but, but if they can get through it, if they can get through those, those initial uh, three to six months uh, of recovery, then, then patients really do have a sustained benefit in their urinary-specific quality of life. Again, this is not an operation that anybody chooses to go through lightly. Uh, it's something certainly that asks a lot of them. It asks a lot of their family. Um, but I think they really do come out better on the other end um, for those who recover well from it. Now, why robotic intracorporeal? So I think there's a lot of debate on this in the oncology world. What's, what's, does, does robotic cystectomy really work um, with, with improved ARES protocols, even perhaps robotic versus open? There's not a huge benefit. But what I've really found is that in this patient population with neurogenic bowel, it has made a huge difference. I may have patients who, because of their neurogenic bowel and pain requirements after surgery with open cystectomy, maybe in the hospital for a month for no reason other than ileus, that, that hangs around. Uh, whereas my patients who get totally intracorporeal diversions, I've been very happy with uh, how quick their recovery generally is relative to that. So perhaps in the non-neurogenic bowel, maybe less of a difference, but it really has been nice here. Supporting that, that, that sort of uh, inclination that I have uh, is a large series from Cleveland Clinic, not a neurogenic, I presume mostly oncology, of course, Cleveland Clinic comes up, they've got 950 patients, you know, with cystectomies and um, fairly equal numbers in both groups. But what they found looking at our intracorporeal diversion, extracorporeal diversion, and totally open procedures, what we found is that the intracorporeal seemed to have less blood loss, perhaps bias, but shorter hospitalization, uh, lower rate of ileus, uh, and a lower overall complication rate. So whether there's some selection bias in that, it's retrospective data, um, but I, I have found that really do enjoy it. And this is a patient who was very anxious and her pain was really minimal afterwards. 
Um, so uh, I think it's a really nice option to, to consider and we all get well trained in robotics and I think this is going to become uh, the, the future at least for neurogenic bladder. Um, last uh, case, case number six. So this is a, a, a challenging, a really quite challenging situation. Um, 65 year old gentleman uh, with a T10 complete spinal cord injury. He sustained in a, a skiing accident when he was 34. He initially was doing intermittent catheterization, had to stop for some reason, couldn't quite remember why. Uh, ultimately had a superputer tube placed because of the catheter erosion and then continued to leak despite having a urethral bulking injection. So tracings for him really weren't worth looking at, but, but his video urodynamics image showed that it filled him with 30 cc's and he just leaked right out with a wide, wide open bladder neck. Um, and so I think clearly the, the easiest answer for him in terms of having him not leak anymore, he already had a colostomy, perhaps we could do a no bowel anastomosis, you know, simple cystectomy uh, and get him out of the hospital pretty quickly. But he was really adamant that he wanted a reconstructive option that would not require him to have another continuous drainage. He didn't like his colostomy and didn't want to have another one of those on the urinary side. Um, and so here it is, just the arrow showing his floridly open uh, bladder neck. And so he elected for an open ileocecal augment. Now, this wide open bladder neck, we had to address that because if you augment him, you can make his bladder as big as you want. Don't have to worry about drusor overactivity, um, but he'll just leak. As soon as the bladder fills, he will leak. Uh, and so even though catheter erosion, we see it more commonly in women, I absolutely will see it in men too. Uh, and those circumstances, if they want an augment, it, it really makes it a lot more challenging. Um, so let's just talk a minute uh, about augmentation cystoplasty. On the right is this quickly moving pictures through his particular surgery, um, which we'll talk about in, in just a second. Um, I prefer the ileocecal augment uh, probably to a large extent. It's because of my comfort level from making Indiana pouches for, for malignancy, so it's just familiar to me. Um, but also, I really do think that the goal here is to make the bladder bigger. It achieves that goal. Uh, and the goal is to achieve continence as far as the stoma. Um, and lastly, the goal is to not have to uh, reoperate on the patient because of stenosis at the skin level, which I think is probably one of the most common reasons people undergo uh, reoperations after catheterizable channel creation. And I think this probably achieves all of those goals the best. About 95% of patients will be continent through their, through their stoma. Capacity increases very nicely with about a 10 centimeter or so segment of right colon. Uh, and then there, when, when you look at it, there seems to be the lowest rate of stenosis for non-reconfigured ileum when you look at the various types of catheterizable channels. And you talk about appendix in, in adults with big abdominal walls, it's certainly a hard option to use in, in that population. Now in this patient and, and in other patients, you have to consider whether you need to treat the outlet, as we were saying. And I don't think there's a great universal protocol for what to do for the outlet. Uh, in men, it's especially tough. I think in women, you can do slings and it's pretty uh, straightforward, particularly if you're doing this surgery, it's pretty straightforward to add a, a vaginal approach to a sling or even a, a bladder neck sling to it um, that works nicely, um, but not, not so much in men. Um, so as we kind of move, move through these, I'll pause that a second. Here you have just the isolated bowel segment. We've got our bowel anastomosis here. I think a couple views of that. Um, we've got our clamshell bladder getting ready for us to sew the augment down into it. Uh, and then we've got our uh, tapered, tapered catheterizable channel. Uh, we've got our measuring tape around the bladder neck. Here's our bladder neck artificial urinary sphincter in position. Uh, and then I believe this is showing where our tubing is going uh, after, um, 
we've tunneled it. And these are final images. Here's a Provena wound vac. I think, I think if you look at the picture before, you can see one of the things that probably makes you most paranoid is having open colon and then putting a foreign body in there. But we actually um, uh, use a Provena wound vac to, and then some prayer to, to avoid infection in these circumstances. are very, very careful with washout technique and antibiotic irrigation. And um, uh, you hope, but you know, at some point that, that'll be a challenge that patients have to have to risk. Um, and here's the final appearance. There's a colostomy cath channel and then uh, going from there. So um, as far as the uh, other considerations in the long term with ileocecal augment, so let's say you, you get through the procedure and the patient does, you know, great, and I'll just play that, and, and the patient does great, you still, you know, can't high five in the long term because these patients have a lot of maintenance um, and they, they have to know that and be counseled accordingly before you go into uh, this treatment. Um, what I tell patients is that uh, the ideal person for this operation already knows how to catheterize and can't for some reason. So, because in men, that's usually a stricture. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's, it's not right for everybody. Uh, and that's certainly important. Patients who can't catheterize themselves, I think it's really hard. It, it's harder. You're not necessarily setting them up for success unless they have a really, really reliable, uh, great support system. Um, malignancy risk is there. Uh, it's, it's highly variable in the literature, um, but something to think about. It certainly increases over the course of time. Um, we're talking about 10 to 15 years out. I think ileocecal augments don't seem to be at necessarily higher risk than other forms of augments uh, as far as cancer risk. Um, the 11-year risk of secondary surgery and long-term series is about 40 to 50%. So patients are going to be back in the operating room, whether it's for stomal stenosis or another reason. Probably the most common reason is because of bladder stones. Um, but then that dreaded complication, the emergency complication of a bladder perforation may happen in as many as 10% of patients. So certainly important to counsel as, as far as that as well. Right. Um, so that's, those are all the cases I have. I hope what I've convinced you as we've gone through these cases is, is that video urodynamics is critically important in the diagnosis and management in patients uh, with neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. I, I hope you see that. I don't think I could decide really for any of those patients exactly what to offer them and, and how to proceed without video urodynamics. But I will say as an aside, um, I think there's a lot of classic teaching, uh, which, which is great from all the incredible work that uh, Dr. McGuire did in the, in the 80s on kids with, spina, uh, kids with spina bifida, about leak point pressures and upper tract deterioration. Um, the, challenge is, the challenge is, in adults, I don't think that video urodynamics is so super reliable at assessing risk of upper tract deterioration. I think to some extent, you see upper tract deterioration and high-risk features and you figure they go together, which they probably do. But I have a lot of patients with very, quote-unquote, high-risk features that don't have upper tract changes. Um, and for this, if you're interested in a little bit more of seeing what the data is out there uh, on this particular topic, there is a um, systematic review and meta-analysis that was done uh, over the last year in neurology and neurodynamics, which, which touches on that topic specifically. Again, treatment for patients has to be individualized according to their upper tract risk, although again, that's a little bit harder to assess. Of course, their bother and their willingness to, to undergo risk in order to improve that bother and the specific pathophysiology that we identify on video urodynamics. I wanna quickly, before I, I finish, I think I'm on time. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Hampson. I don't know whether she's watching this one, but I'll, maybe I'll have her, her watch this. I don't want to embarrass her too much. Um, Dr. Hampson and I uh, 
uh, uh, met in medical school. I had the privilege of, of meeting her in medical school and then the privilege of also going through um, all of my uh, clinical rotations with her, uh, uh, joining and matching in urology with her and also uh, Dr. Borowski, another one of, the, one of these lecturers um, from earlier in the sequence. Uh, and it was really a privilege to, to get to know her in medical school and continue to be friends with her over the years. Uh, I'm impressed, but not surprised. She continues to excel uh, as a uh, surgeon, uh, certainly as a friend. She's always been great. And now she's excelling as a mom as well, somehow doing it all. Um, so she's really great. And um, I'm grateful she's put this together and given me the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I ask you for questions before I do. I want to thank all that you do. Thank you guys for all that you do as residents. You're the true, you know, backbone. Forgive me for making a dad joke um, in a neurogenic bladder lecture. Um, you're the true backbone of care in academic medicine. Um, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice, that I think, from, from everyone, but we know that the residents are, are just doing so much. And um, what I say is that, as an attending in an academic program is that uh, I, I know we're committed uh, to hopefully keeping, keeping you safe, always hopefully letting you know how much we appreciate what you do, both in this time of crisis and uh, at other times as well. Um, so thank you. Um, my email is here, it's listed. Uh, please feel free to send me uh, emails. Uh, if you don't have a question, get answered during the Q&A or if you're someone who's watching this after, after the fact, I'm uh, always happy to take, to take emails and feedback. And then I think I, there's one last slide that I'm supposed to keep up here. You can review it. Great. Thank you for a great talk, as always, uh, Josh. There are um, a few questions that came in as, as you were lecturing. Um, the first two were kind of had to do with Botox. Um, what's your experience with Botox into the external sphincter alone um, for detrusor external sphincter dyssynergia? And then after that, how about your thoughts on trigone injection? Oh, sure. Um, so I'll take it for a detrusor, uh, for sphincter injection alone. Um, most of the patients that I've used external, uh, external sphincter Botox in, uh, we have a fairly big, through Moss Rehab, anoxic brain injury and traumatic brain injury population. And those patients have a little bit of a pseudo-dysynergia type picture. Um, and so I, I'm using it in them because many times they're not emptying their bladder completely. They don't like being catheterized as much. And so we're trying to decrease the sort of frequency of how often they've been catheterized. Uh, and, and not so much in the spinal cord MS population. That's actually one of the exceptions uh, to the rule as far as that. Um, my experience is it's okay. It's a little disappointing. Um, I haven't been able to take anybody from being catheterized three or four times a day to not needing catheterization. I have been able to take some people down from three or four to maybe one or two. That's where I find I get the benefit. I have uh, a couple patients that I've put uh, sacral nerve stimulation devices in and done external sphincter bot you know, botulinum toxin. And I think that 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 it does something um, because we're trying to reduce their UTIs and catheterization frequency. Um, but uh, not as many home runs with that approach. And again, also they're in the operating room every potentially six months or, or more, um, which I think limits, limits its efficacy. And it's probably why it's not, not my first choice despite uh, some promising data in that regard. And second is uh, for trigonal onobotulinum toxin A injection. Uh, I think that's where most of the nerves are concentrated in neurogenics. Uh, in neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction, I tend not to concentrate my injection there because I really think we're trying to sort of treat the detrusor muscle. Um, but certainly in pelvic pain, 
and uh, interstitial cystitis and bladder pain syndrome, there's a lot of good evidence that onabotulinum toxin A in the, in the trigone really targets the sensory nerves and frequency. And so I, I have patients who are more bothered by pain or frequency component. I do target it there. And I may do, if I'm doing 10 injections, for example, I may try to put, you know, seven of them in the, in the trigone and, and see how that works. And I've had success with that in, in that specific population. Um, next question is, are you doing uh, PTNS implants in the office? What do you see the role of that being moving forward? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm working, on, uh, I'm working on, on getting involved with, uh, uh, with a company for a trial for PTNS implants, but I'm so excited for that technology. Uh, there are so many wonderful uh, uh, technologies that are in the works right now. Um, just to briefly run through, uh, there's, uh, there's something called... Uh, Ecoin, which a, it's an implant that goes into uh, over the over the tibial nerve that gets implanted, and that runs on a cycle. You know, every automatically, I believe it's twice a week, so it sort of takes you through the PTNS usual, you know, maintenance and uh, an induction course through that automatically. There are several other uh, implants that uh, you wind up wearing an ankle brace um, once a night, and so the idea there is that instead of being able to get a sort of dose of tibial nerve stimulation, you get that dose. Uh, on a nightly basis. Uh, you don't have to come back just once a month for maintenance. You can do maintenance as often as you think you need to. It's a very exciting space. Um, when you're in practice and you're talking to, to patients about having a device put in their buttocks to then go to their sacral nerve and have something implanted, they really look at you funny. And then honestly, some of them look at you pretty funny when you tell them you're going to bring them to the office every week for 12 weeks in a row. And then and then, you know, potentially once a month thereafter. Uh, and so I think it's when we get that as an option that we can introduce into clinical practice, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It's going to work. Um, it may work better, um, but uh, uh, I'm very excited for that. Um, in general, tibial nerve stimulation, if you look across the studies, almost no matter, um, no matter what the sort of dosing or approach, uh, you get about a 70% response rate across the board. And I think we'll see similar, maybe a little better since we can increase the dose on it, but compliance with therapy will, will go up. Yeah, that will be an exciting, exciting thing to look at. Um, the next question was about slings. If a patient with a sling already has a sling in place with continued leakage, um, do you do a sling revision primarily or will you attempt salvage bulking in those patients? Uh, so it, it depends. It depends on how badly they're leaking. Um, and um, what kind of slang? I, I think a lot of times the slang question comes up as a, maybe a patient who has a mid urethral. So this was talking about a, specifically a pubovaginal slang, a rectus fascia slang that was intentionally tied over tight. So I mean, you, you talk about two or three finger breasts in the in the non neurogenic population when you're not really trying to obstruct. For this, you probably tie about one finger breath, you know, above the fascia for an over tight slang, and you, you take a look at the um, cystoscopy and take a look. Um, if they're not leaking that much, if it's not florid, I would try bulking agent because you really don't have a lot to lose. Um, looking at the, the mid-urethral sling population or sort of a more traditional sling procedure, for frankly, for men with post-prostatectomy incontinence, we're talking about potentially an 80% salvage rate. I've had good success with, with injecting bulking agent. I've expanded the use of bulking agent in men kind of, kind of for a similar presentation, even if they haven't had treatment yet. And I've, I've, I've been happy with it. Uh, and certainly the same for women as well. So I, I don't think you have a lot to lose by, by trying it. Um, so uh, unless you really just think that you're going to be wasting an operation. Great. Um, and then there's, there's kind of two more questions to go, both regarding your cystectomies. 
um, to start. And your simple cystectomies, is there a reliable way that you try to identify patients who may have a more difficult immediate post-op course? Um, for example, many of younger patients may not have the same medical comorbidities as your, your older cohorts. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. Um, I think everybody can potentially have a hard postoperative course. It's a hard operation. Uh, certainly there are some patients who, are, who are, have a greater degree of comorbidities and those patients are at a greater risk. Um, but uh, I will tell you that um, everybody's got to be prepared for a hard road. And if, and if you get, and if you get lucky and everything, all the stitches, you know, you put all the stitches where you want and if things go great and, and, and they get out of the hospital, you know, in in seven days and everybody's, you know, smiling and, and happy, that's fantastic. Um, but they all have to be prepared for the other scenario that all of us see when we take care of cystectomies. Um, and then many neurogenic bladder patients are malnourished. Does this change your approach to wound closure or removal of drains and staples? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm a little more conservative with that, uh, with, with pulling, pulling drains and staples out. Uh, I, I don't rush. I, I think I, I take it on a case-by-case -case basis, but I try to pull drains out um, after, after I pull the stents out of them, going to pull them out, you know, when they're in the hospital. Those are usually for patients who may be there for more than the two weeks I usually would leave stents in. Um, but uh, I leave staples in a little bit longer in a malnourished population. We try try getting them with preconditioning on boost, you know, uh, to to optimize their nutrition ahead of time. There is some evidence that 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 can help at least more in the colorectal world than than urology, but certainly can help. I don't think we've talked about preconditioning. I think in radical cystectomy for actual physical sort of rehabilitation beforehand, and that that's really hard in patients who are you know quadriplegic. But you can optimize their 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 uh, nutrition otherwise. Great. Um, and then one last question just came in. Um, what has your experience been with neurostimulation in your uh, neurogenic bladder patients? Yeah, so uh, another, um, another thing I'm super excited about, uh, I, again, I think that our use of neuromodulation has been limited. Uh, part of it is marketing. Again, a lot more patients with overactive bladder out there than neurogenic bladder. So it makes sense that if you're a company trying to, you know, have as many of these put in as possible, you're going to market it for overactive bladder. And the truth is it works great for a lot of patients with overactive bladder. Um, but in neurogenics, it's a really, it's a really desperate group without, you know, a potential better option. When you get, to, by the time I get to neuromodulation in many of these patients, their next option is truly not just living with their symptoms, it's cystectomy or augment, which is a way bigger step. And so the only way to know if it's gonna work is to try it. Now, some patients, it's just silly to try, you know, who are um, really debilitated. There's no way they can manage their device. They don't have the support system to even try to manage it. But for any patient who comes into your office under their own, under their own power, has, has either a family member or a good support system in place, even if they can't manage the device themselves, that can help them uh, and, and is willing to undergo that operation, I'll try. Um, and again, my experience is less Despite some of the promising data that came from out, you know, otherwise from, from outside, uh, my experience is less that it improves emptying, but it does a really quite nice job with improving the urgency and urge-associated leakage. So, awesome. Well, I think that wraps up our questions. Um, I was asked to remind everyone that the 10:10 a.m. lecture is canceled due to an unforeseen schedule conflict. Um, Dr. Ween's lecture on overactive bladder and lower urinary tract dysfunction has been rescheduled to June. Um, and thank you again for your understanding in this matter.
and to remember to um, evaluate the lecture so we can continue to improve these lectures as we go along. All right, thanks, Dr. McGarry, appreciate it. Thanks Great. everybody for coming. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.